Sometimes I think we forget, well, I know for us, like, that maybe been in the church a long time, we forget how silly we were when we first started doing a lot of that stuff. And, and to me, I don't know if it's silly. I think God likes it all. Just like we laugh at little kids when they dance, I think God laughs at us when we dance. I think that's just how it is. He enjoys us. Blessed humility is what it is. Well, in the last two or three weeks, we've been studying through the book of uh, uh, Ephesians, and we started in Acts chapter 19 because we wanted to see how a church gets started. And, and uh, believe it or not, uh, churches didn't get started by uh, having a pastor who just decided, you know, hey, I'm just going to go plant a church and we're going to raise funding and I'm going to preach from church to church until I raise enough funding to safely go into a city and, and blow that city up in the name of Jesus. Actually, what happened is Paul said, hey, I'm going to take this route <laughs> and anybody I meet along the way, I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. And as I talk to him about Jesus, uh, it maybe it'll develop into another group that talks about Jesus, and he'll—I'll just call that the church. And it didn't have four walls. It didn't have anything to like a barrier to hold it or stop it or pull it back. It—it it didn't have an organizational flow. Um, it was all new. Matter of fact, the church in Ephesus, like we we studied uh, the first week. Uh, it came out of witchcraft, basically, and idolatry. Uh, uh, in the beginning, some of the very first revivals that were happening in Ephesus all happened because people were throwing away their magic books and their silver gods and all these things. And so the guys that got mad, that rioted and tried to kick Paul out of there, they were mad that he had ruined their business. Hey, man, I'm making good money off these schmucks. I don't think he said that word, but I mean, like, <laughs> but I mean, that's how it was. We're making good money off these dudes. If they want to worship idols that we make with our hands all day long, man, it's capitalism at its best. Let us, let us just make the money. And he's like, yeah, but it's wrong, right? And as they repent and start to throw things out of their life, the church in Ephesus is born. And again, it's not a four-walled building. The church in Ephesus is people. It's all people, right? We move on a little farther. We see that there's issues inside the church. By the way, every letter to every... Uh, on every epistle is because something is wrong, and Paul is having to correct it. So this idea, I love all the people like, we need to go back to the way church was. Man, like where? Like in the Corinthians, where they're having like sexual issues going on inside the church, and Paul's having to address, like tell them what love is all over again because they've skewed that and messed that up? Or, or is it like Ephesians where they're fighting over who's the best pastor? Or, I mean, like at what church do we go back to, right? Which one? Which one? I mean, take your pick. They all got m messed up problems They all because they're all made of people. They all got issues. They all, they're all made of people. The, the navigation that we're supposed to get by reading these epistles is to see that we, uh, uh, we're not alone in being messed up. <laughs> we're not alone in the struggle to get it right. And uh, one of the things I love about the church of Ephesus is they do a pretty good job of getting a lot of things right. Now, when we get to the end of this, we're going to have a discussion about what some of that looks like and what some of the things that fell through the kind of sifted through at the end. But for right now, we do see they get a lot of things right, even though they have some issues. Last, last week, we talked about remembering. Uh, uh, Paul was talking about uh, remember where you came from. Remember, Don't you remember what salvation was like for you? We talked about how that draws us by remembering and going back, the return to our testimony, the return to where Jesus found us. It gives us a baseline, a foundation by which we can put everything else on. So like I have, a, I have this foundation, this firm foundation that I know that through the Virgin Mary came Jesus, that through my foundations from that Jesus 
uh, came an atonement for sin. Who's the sin? I'm the sin. I'm the sinner. I'm the person committing by my own very nature the sin. Uh, the gospel presentation is placed there in our testimony. Uh, uh, we know that through the atonement of the cross, Jesus dying for us, we now receive grace and mercy. We, we're imputed righteousness because we're united now with Christ. So everything that applies to Christ now applies to us, not because we earned it. That's the foundation of That's the foundation of your testimony. I once was this, now I am this. And we have to go back and constantly remember this, right? Because you, you throw all kinds of stuff. You're like For you theologians, you throw like uh, the sovereignty of God on top of that foundation. And you throw uh, healings and all this other prophetic ministry stuff on there. And like over the years, some stuff washes off, some stuff washes away. But what stays? That foundation of you just knowing Jesus. I don't know. what. And, and so like well, the funny thing is, is if you've, by the way, you young Christians, you need to hang out with older Christians. I mean, one of the greatest things that I think helped me in my life, and I told people the first time I ever got like filled with the Holy Spirit came from three gray-haired women. Uh, and they just prayed over me, and, and man, I got full of the Holy Ghost. It wasn't no pastor. It was three uh, gray-haired women that prayed for me and were speaking tongues over me. And man, I got filled with the Holy Ghost, and it like totally changed my life. And in that moment, I'm going to tell you, like, I talked with a lot of them and would talk with them all the time. And you know one of the things that I always come back that I always, in my hunger and thirst for being a baby... Baby Christian, hungering, thirsting for all these deep things. You know the very thing that they would always say to me? Man, all I know is Jesus and him crucified, and it's enough. Because you know what I think happens? The older I get, here's where I see some wisdom in that. A lot of stuff washes away off the foundation, so you tend to appreciate the foundation more than you appreciate the brick and mortar on the top. Just saying. There's a lot of good stuff you learn out there, but it'll never be as good as when it's first, that first foundation. That's what, but here's the great thing. That's the thing that'll stand through the tornado, man. All this stuff you built on top of it might fly away, but that very foundation of your testimony, it will stay forever. Amen? Good stuff. Good stuff to this. So this is our fourth week into this letter, and Paul's doing some pretty good preaching. He's constantly reconciling this idea of our identity in Christ. He's constantly trying to unite us in Christ. Uh, and and he's, basically, he's talking about being a Christian. It's more than just about a title. It's about living and loving and doing everything in and through Christ. And this morning, we're going to try to discover some more of this, God's plan and God's purpose. Paul wants to unfold this to us. Now, the funny thing is, Paul's staying around some baby steps still. So you're going to feel a lot of redundant things being said. But it's okay. I'll tell you one thing I heard at a leadership meeting, and I've always loved it. Uh, any truth is worth repeating. And sometimes we have found this in youth ministry, but true. Can I tell you, every February in youth ministry, you know what we're going to teach on? Why the hazards of dating why you shouldn't be doing this, purity, what it looks like. Every February, it's guaranteed. I'm gonna, every April, I'm going to teach about the resurrection and everything. Every Christmas, I'm going to teach about the birth of Christ. And every, why? Why is it every... Because repetitiveness is really good for us, actually. It's really good for us to repeat things over and over and over until it becomes the standard by which we understand. It becomes the foundation. So let's, we're going to go back first to chapter 1. I'm going to talk a little bit, or I'm gonna, we're going to go back to chapter 1, read a few scriptures there, and then we're going to jump to chapter 3, and we'll really begin right there. But I, I think I need to set us up because he talks about a little bit what he wants to share, but he doesn't get into really sharing the exact thing until chapter 3. So in chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, we'll start there. Chapter 1, 9 through 14. Say amen if you're there. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. 
At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we're united with Christ, we've received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance and makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that the Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring the praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own, giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Slip over there to chapter 3. We're going to pick it up at verse 3. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now his spirit has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets, and this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are a part of the same body, and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Jesus Christ. By God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about this endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heaven places. This was his eternal plan which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Two simple things. Let's just focus on two simple things. A lot there, but we're going to focus on two simple things. <clears throat> and we want to make sure we have a clear and simple understanding of first and foremost that God has a plan. That should be comforting, by the way. God has a plan. It's not happenstance, guys. Well, I just think, you know, some things just happen. Mm -mm. That's not what the Bible is very clear about. God has a plan. It's a very intentional plan. Also, God has a purpose. Paul reaffirms our confidence. He's trying to tell us, be, it's a, man, you can have hope, you can have faith that there's going to be things that are going to happen that are good for this world. This has been a good thing. Why? Because God, this has been God's plan. This was God's plan from the beginning, which means that God has organized and orchestrated everything that's happened up to this point. His hand has been in it, right? And before we get into the details, let's understand why, the big why he's doing this. Because this like usually blows people away. Like, I just want to know why I got this and why this. Because it makes him feel good. It says, according to his goodwill and pleasure. It makes him feel good. It just, and it actually is not the first time you're going to see this idea being pushed out. It's a lot in the Old Testament, too. And Paul will actually say it a few more times in a different way. Jesus kind of says it in one of the Gospels where he talks about it a little bit. Because it makes God feel good. Because he delights in choosing you. He delights in his plan. He delights in bringing all of you into the fold and bringing you into himself. He, he said, God says, it's Jesus who says, I have prepared a place for you. I, I, I've done work that you could not see because I was already creating this plan to bring you in. Not only was I, I was getting this plan, it was happening during this whole time while you were living. I was also preparing a place where I would bring you into this. Like, I didn't just like think, okay, what happens next? I, okay, I did the gospel. Now, now that it works, maybe I should go back and build a place for all these people who are going to believe in me. No, like that's already been happening. I'm working toward this moment. There's this plan is constantly, it's happening in heaven and it's happening on earth at the same time. Both these actions are happening at the same time. It's very, very simple here. 
He's reminding us of what other writers have already reminded us, that, that the gospel is God's display of his love and his grace and his mercy. God is doing all this because it just pleases him. And it's important that we understand the why. It's important that we understand that God is pleased, pleased in choosing us. He's pleased in creating a plan where we're included in that plan. You need to know that. God doesn't hate you. He doesn't hate you. It's not like some days you're bad and God hates you. Quit. That's your parents. That's not you. I'm just being honest. That's how we treat our kids, right? Come on. When your kid's wrong, you pop them. They think you hate them. But that's not, you don't hate them, do you? You love them. You don't, they don't understand that you're trying to discipline, right? So, listen, God's a lot misunderstood that way, too. God must hate me. He just, da, da, da. You just don't understand God has your best interests. Why? Why does he even have your best interests? It's not like you treat him great. Because he loves you. Because it pleases him to do it. Not you have anything. You have nothing to do with that. Think about that. You have nothing to do whether it pleases God or not. That's all on him. He chooses to be pleased with that action. It's who he is. So let's talk about the plan. What is the plan? <coughs> the plan is simple. To bring all things under the authority of Christ. Really simple. And who are all things? Both Jew and Gentile. Simple. It's been, it's been his plan from the beginning. The plan has never been an inclusive plan. God has always intended of bringing everything in underneath the authority of Jesus Christ. Paul would later go on to pen a letter to the Romans conveying this same message. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This was always God's plan. And how is it done? Well, there are so many different people that are brought together uh, uh, through one mind in, in unity. I mean, these things are brought together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you save the Jews? You've been talking to the Jews your whole life. All of a sudden, you're going to open this thing up to the Gentiles. How is it going to happen? I mean, the Gentiles don't even live according to the Old Testament. And, and you know, really, if you really start to look at that, you'll start to see how much you really don't understand about God. How can a whole people who never had to experience the Old Testament all of a sudden have available for them everything that comes in Jesus Christ, where everything that, that we talk about Jesus fulfilled is now imputed unto them without having to live underneath it? It starts to make you think, could the Jews have ever gone without living under the law and still understand Jesus Christ and that whole plan still would have worked without the law ever happening? It makes you wonder, too, now, because this is what we've done to the law is create a legalistic system whereby which we said we merited ourselves. If we, if we killed animals and stuff, we thought, okay, that's, that's what gives us salvation. But Hebrews 11 is very clear about that, that faith is what saved Abraham. Not the sacrificing of animals, not the butchering of animals. Those things didn't save it. Faith saved them. If, as a matter of fact, go read it. It's like the Hall of Fame or the Hall of Faith, as they like to call it. Right? Faith saved these individuals. The same faith that God requires now is the same faith that he required then. But he was trying to teach. He, the law is this display, this exposition of who Jesus is and who is coming, who's going to fulfill all these things. Right? And the only way God could communicate what it would take, what holiness might look like or what righteousness might look like to a sinful people is to create a law. Think about the law as a way of communicating. If you can commu you've got to communicate with somebody who doesn't understand you. You've got to talk to somebody who doesn't know how you talk. So, and you're already messed up in the way you think. You can't think in the way God thinks anymore because you're deprived in your nature. Your nature now is sinful. You, you are separate from God and you're trying to understand. So God imposes this thing and says, look, I want to tell you about my plan, Jesus. But if I come out and just tell you, hey, I'm going to have this, this son who's going to be born this virgin. I've got to like explain it to you over time. Like I've got to dumb it down to like kid talk. Right? And me, I think the Bible's pretty easy to understand in a lot of ways. It's pretty easy, I, I think, to understand. I, 
I, I don't think it is that hard. I think most people do get it. I, I've seen, uh, you know, all types of people from the youngest to old say things that just baffle me how, how much wisdom comes out of when they read the Bible. So I don't think it's that hard to get. What I, what I think is hard to get is for us to understand how that, how that talks, how that communication is between us and God. I think there's a great struggle there, and I think it comes from our deprived nature. And God is trying to tell us in the most easiest, kind of dumbed-down way he can about Jesus coming. And that's what's happening in and out of the lives throughout the Old Testament. And when he describes the law, he's describing, hey, I need to tell you about this righteousness that's going to be imputed to you. But how do I tell you about righteousness when you don't really understand what's really right and wrong? Come on, man. Some of you would be like, I'm for democracy. Well, you're not going to get that in heaven because it's not righteous. See, in democracy, sin and, sin and righteousness can live next to each other. That's not going to happen in heaven, guys. You know, it's a, it's a crazy thing we have here in America with democracy. It allows people who completely hate each other to totally have a free life where, where you better learn to respect each other kind of thing. But it's God's way in heaven, guys. So our, our idea of righteousness is already skewed from the beginning. What we think is right, what we think is wrong, it already starts out skewed. So God's like, all right, so how do I explain this? Well, let me create this law thing so they can see these things will lead you to right. These things are the things that are be good. These things, and it was like, God, we can't do it. Yeah, I know, I know. It was never, I, I totally knew you couldn't do it. I'm trying to talk to you. I'm trying to explain to you, son. You understand what I'm saying? That's God's like, I'm trying to explain to you, son. I get you can't do it. I, I, I understand that. You, you're, you're missing my point. But I'm going to try to do it because I want to be the most righteous. Listen, no, 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 you're not. You're never going to get it. It's just set up to show you how you're never going to get it. But don't worry, I'm going to send Jesus. And that's why that little nugget, like in every, every from Genesis 3 and on, you see this little nugget where God's trying to prophesy that, don't worry, I'm going to make a way. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Have faith in me, have faith in me that it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. I've got, to, I've got to get everything just right. I've got to get it all right. When it happens, it's going to happen, and it's going to be glorious and great. It's my plan. It's my purpose. So God's trying to explain. He's trying to explain. It's very hard. It's very hard. So all of this, we're all brought together in this right now. So the Jews and Gentile, we're all brought together through the gospel. It's through salvation that God's, it transforms us. We were different before. We were Jew and Gentile, but wait a minute. Now we're just saints. We were, we were a different race and different different. Uh, nationalities, but it doesn't matter now because now we're just in Christ. John 3, 3, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Why is this so important? Because unless we're changed, uh, you know, he calls it born again, but the born again thing comes from the idea that once Jesus comes into us, there's going to be a physical change. Repentance should produce change. Repentance should produce change. We're transformed, and Christ is the catalyst of that change. And listen, it's not an overnight work. Paul tells the church in Ephesus the same thing he told the Romans, that God makes everything work out according to his plan. And his plan is that we shouldn't perish, but that we should have life through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we would all be under the authority of Christ and can share in Christ this wonderful inheritance that is promised to us. And all of this is a process. I know we like things instant. This is the instant society. I was reminded the other day I saw a little clip of a guy was talking about how much we're like such the unappreciative generation. He goes, man, this generation is just so unappreciative. He said, man, I was sitting on an airplane, and he goes, like, they came out and says, hey, we have Wi-Fi on the airplane, and, and uh, you know, and, and uh, man, it's going to make this total, you know, fast Wi-Fi is all available to you. Da -da. He said, the guy opens his computer, starts getting on. He says, it's not 10 minutes later that the thing goes down, and the guy's like, this is, this is so dumb. I can't believe this. And he goes, what the heck? 
What are you owed, first of all? You know, we just got Wi-Fi internet access a mile off the ground. He said, first of all, if you can't even appreciate flying in a plane, think about how we are as a people. Think about how we are. You are sitting in a chair in the sky. You can't even appreciate that, man. Think about that, right? You're on the internet while sitting in a chair in the sky complaining about how your Wi-Fi, which is going into outer space and coming back, and it takes too long? What? Give it a second to go into outer space and back, man. That, there has to be some change in us. There has to be a level of, uh, of appreciation for what Christ has done. There has to be an acknowledgement that we were sinners, that we were messed up. Something was wrong, right? So we repent. We come to the Lord. That born-again process, that, that's, what, that's what Jesus called. You know, how do you describe it? What else do you say to it? I'm a different person. It's like I was born somebody different now, man. I have a new history. It starts right here. I look like an adult, but spiritually I'm a child and I'm growing. Everything has changed. My life has turned 180, man. Not 360. 180, man. I totally don't even walk that same way anymore. Now it's hard because sometimes it's more like at an angle than it is a full 180. Right? It's more like a 90 at first, you know? I'm working on getting all the way around, but it's like really hard. I'm looking this way, but I keep going this way. All right? It's, it's hard. It's a process. It's difficult. It's easy to sum up the gospel. It's easy to say, well, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. It's hard to live it. It's hard to live it. And and, and most of us know that have been saved uh, for any length of time, the goal of becoming like Christ is a lifelong pursuit. It's an everyday get up and work hard sort of thing. Oh, you can't will it. If you could will it, you'd already be it. You can't will it to happen. That's why you need Jesus. You need God. You need Christ or it's not going to happen. The only way you're ever going to turn 180 in your life is with the help of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but God requires it. It's hard because we still struggle with our fleshly desires we, that, and wants that pull us away from being more like Christ. We fight with this old nature, not physically old, but old that, that in our former selves we find it easier to go back living where we didn't care if we sinned or not. Man, I, there are times where I've even said to myself, man, ignorance is bliss. Man, it was nice not knowing stuff. I've actually stopped people for going to tell me something. I could tell where it's headed. Like, I don't want to know. Don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. Why? Because I don't want to have a bad like thought about it or you. Don't say anything to me. Don't, 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 don't. I don't want to know. Ignorance is bliss. We know it, right? We know it. But sometimes we think if we go back, though, that's where we'll be happy at. That's where we, some of us over-dramatize our past. We think we were actually happier back then or or we remember moments that, that we think were actually seemingly happy and they weren't, right? Because you're never really full of joy and you're never really full of happiness until you find Jesus Christ. Nobody will ever know joy or happiness until we tell them about Christ either. True joy, true happiness comes from Jesus. And people need to know that. Otherwise, they keep on going, living the life that they're going. I was on Facebook the other day looking at a, a person who used to be one of my students and uh, she had posted something about one of these kids who had got burst, busted and burned it. And one of the saddest things to me was another comment down below that it said, uh, uh, and, and, you know, the conversation that, that took place in the passage was something to the degree of, you know, man, I, you know, like I, you know, he gets what he deserves. I was like, man, I pity that th- the people who think like that. Nobody deserves meth. 
Nobody deserves drugs. The only reason they turn to drugs is because they failed to turn to Jesus. Maybe they failed to turn to Jesus because nobody ever told them. This idea that it's always somebody, listen, man, he has to, he, nobody's going to pay the consequences for his actions like him. That you can be guaranteed of. But our job is to love people and tell them of the things that rob them of joy and rob them of happiness. And one of the comments down below that bothered me the most was this. Sometimes that's the only way you can get happy. And there was like people who liked it. I was like, are you kidding me? Now, I didn't want to get on there and get crazy. You know, I'm, I'm not a keyboard warrior. But I mean, I, I was like, oh my gosh, it's just because you don't know Jesus. You just don't know that you say that. But that's not happiness. Look at this kid. Does he look happy? He had a whole lot of drugs. Because he doesn't look happy in that mugshot. I mean, he looks like he's older than me. He's like 20. This is change, guys. Paul here is trying to say, man, it's a process. We're uniting with Christ. God's pulling us all in. That, listen, by the way, for our culture, what that means, that means like those kids that there, all those people that got busted there and burned it there that you saw on your Facebook feeds, if you follow any of the newspapers, that means they're us too. You without Jesus, man, you're the same person as them. You're just as capable, just as easily susceptible Without Jesus in your life, or maybe, uh, and well, I, I, I'll jump ahead, but you're just as susceptible. Jesus offers us a freedom that we've never known and the ability to escape the snare of sin. We finally come to the altar of God's grace. We repent. We ask the Lord to govern our heart, to make it clean, and to live inside us. And if you haven't done that, you need to do that this morning, and you will get the opportunity this morning. The gospel was God's plan to save the earth, to bring all things under that authority, to bring all things under the rule of Jesus, to, to give us life and to give us freedom. And since we're talking about the gospel and receiving the gospel and being transformed in the gospel, it makes sense that we talk a little bit also about everything that follows afterwards for all of you who wonder the process here. So when you first get saved, and, and yeah, we do the thing where you go over the prayer, but listen, make no mistake, we can go over a prayer with you. I can give you the words of what to say. I can tell you, say this, Jesus, come into my heart. I can tell you all those things, but the words mean nothing unless your actions produce uh, something foundational for those words. At the end of the day, you could say whatever you want, but that doesn't make you save. What makes you save is in your heart, did you really repent? Is your heart really turning a 180? Is there a catalyst for change happening inside of you? Does that mean that we'll see it all the time? No. But we should see something. And I tell you, like, one of the next steps while we're talking about it that ends up happening, usually what's next in a believer's life is we go into baptism. We talk about that. Why? Because there needs to be a confession of faith. There needs to be a confession of faith. <clears throat> because God says we are commanded to also make known our God, who is rich in his mercy and is eager to forgive and who delights in his good pleasure to choose us and call us us own. We teach this all the time. We exist as a person who lives in Christ to know Christ. To know Christ. Two things. We exist to know Christ and to make him known. That's what we exist to do. It's our part to play. And that's as we do this both verbally by the words of our mouth and we do this by the way we live our lives. Both retain an equal value. Just because you talk about Jesus doesn't mean anything unless you also live for Jesus. Right? Ain't nothing going to frustrate somebody more, especially somebody in the church that really loves Jesus, like a person who talks like they love Jesus but don't live like they love Jesus. Oh, you know those people. Well, I go to church. I go to the biggest church in town. They don't know how godly I am. Uh, we do now. 
Not very much. Braggadocious. Does that sound like Jesus? I've got the biggest father around. He will stomp a mud hole in you. He never said that stuff. Jesus ain't like that. So that means you can't be like that. See, with me, when I hear people talk like that, it's like, I treat them like lost. Oh, you're not saved. Because somewhere you stop growing. Somewhere that you're, that's not registering with you, that, that that's not salvation, going to church. Salvation is loving Jesus, changing your life because Jesus is doing something on the inside. That's church. That happens here. That happens outside these walls. That happens at your home. That happens at your work. Right? That's why it was, it's easier to look at these, these churches in the Bible and go, this is where we need to be looking at, guys. Why? Because these guys weren't, they weren't denominational ministries that are locked up in the four walls. And if you came every Sunday and every Wednesday, you somehow attained righteousness. No, man. Their life was judged based off every day. Matter of fact, it's not until you get around chapter 10, maybe a little farther, 12. Uh, and I think in Antioch, it's finally called Christians. But for the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, the whole movement is called the way. And we are not known for who, we believe, for, for who we believe in, but we're known for how we live. We should take that back, guys. We should take that back and get a hold of that. Romans 10, 14, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? How can they believe in him if they never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells him? John 13, 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So what you say is important and how you love others is important. That's the definition of Christian, right? You tell people about Jesus. Why? Because there's something happening. There's an active relationship happening inside of you that just vomits out your mouth. By the way, it's easy to see what's in someone's heart because eventually you'll say it. That's why it's a dangerous place to be if you're a pastor and you're a liar. It's going to come out. It'll come out in your theology. All of a sudden, somebody's theology gets weird. Mm, something's not right because they want to justify the way they believe, right? It happens, guys. It happens. Everything comes out the mouth. Everything the heart produces shoots straight out the mouth. Real quick, it's really easy to see what somebody's heart's like because it comes right out. They can't help it. So what we say is important and how we love and live is important. It's important, both important. The way you live your testimony for what Christ has done for you are both parts of the redemption process. It's not just in your life, but in every life on the face of this planet. This is what it means to be baptized. This is why we baptize. In the waters of baptism, we, both, we find both our public profession of Christ as Lord of all and our symbolic actions. We have declared that His Spirit is alive and well and living within me, changing me into His image. The old man is gone, and now this new one lives. It's symbolic, Right? I mean, I can put you in the water and lift you back up. No, like, nothing like weird is going to happen. It's symbolic. You're saying in front of this whole crowd, like I, which, by the way, should be like the easiest. It should be like the easiest crowd, right? Baptism should always be like the easiest thing. Back then, it wasn't. Back then, it was very public. And since they were like beheading Christians, baptism was like truly the confession of faith. Today, like to me, baptism is not what it was. To me... Today, baptism today, the, the confession of mouth, the outward changing happens when we begin to carry Jesus into our workplace. We begin to carry him outside the four walls. The four walls of the church has, has absolutely become the refuge for the Christianity. But the problem is that Christianity, I'm about to blow your mind, was meant to be dangerous. It was meant to be viral, not holed up in one place. What happens when it gets holed up in one place? 
um, church splits, bitterness, um, pastoral, moral, and ethical failures. Uh, all that begins to happen when it sits stagnant. Matter of fact, one of the things that I always loved about my mentor, I've said this many times in here, but it's always good to repeat this because I would repeat this same thing to you uh, because it's just great advice. If there's ever a time where you're harping on you or anyone else, one of the things I would do, I'd be like, man, I tell you, I'm just sick of this and I'm sick of this and I'm da da da. I can't believe the church acts like this and pastors, blah, 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 blah. I'm like beating everything up, right? I'm just like on the soapbox and, he, and my mentor would always just stop and go, how many people did you win to Jesus this week? Shut up, Right? I mean, that's what, I, that's what I would honestly say. Shut up. Can't you see him rant? You know, well, what's the truth of that? Let me tell you, he's not saying it so I hurt my feelings. He's saying it. You don't have time to worry about what everybody else is doing or what they're not doing. Jim, you're called to live in love. Go live in love. There's too much to be done for you to sit and complain. And if you're sitting and complaining, then you're thinking too much about you and not enough on everybody else who still needs somebody to tell them where joy and happiness can be found. Now, baptism is a wonderful thing. We, we're never going to stop. That's part of who we are as a culture. It helps us remember. It creates the foundation side for us. It reminds us in our life that there's a catalytic change in us. It's important. It, it, it is definitely, definitely important. In baptism, we stand up alongside the Apostle Paul. We declare we're not ashamed of the gospel, right? For it's the power unto salvation. In baptism, we draw a line between flesh and spirit, between good and evil, between life and death. It's good. Baptism, we see the first time, the great divide. We now stand with the Lord for the things he is for and against the things he's against. We separate ourselves now from good men and women to become godly men and women. We don't need any more good men and women. We need godly men and women. We declare Christ as Lord before our friends, our family, and our world, and often this leads to the first trials of our Christian faith. It's not long after baptism. I promise you, you're going to have problems. Because you're starting to say, I will, I'm willing to profess this out loud now. Right? God's like totally fine. I mean, like devil's like totally fine with you if you're just going to keep your mouth shut. But if you're going to start to open it, which baptism symbolizes, I'm about to start opening my mouth for Jesus. That's usually where the devil comes in. It's like, I got to stomp a mud hole in this. Because if this gets out of hand, I'm going to lose. By the way, he's always going to lose. He's just a bad loser. It's the truth. Matthew 10, 32 through 39, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. But everyone, everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also de deny before my Father in heaven. Don't imagine that I come to bring peace to, to the earth. Love that part. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you, or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give your life for me, you will find it. Now, this is not in my notes, but let me just clarify, like, what is this saying? Is this saying, I got to hate my dad to love Jesus? What it's saying that you better love Jesus more than you love your dad. So if Jesus calls and, and, and Jesus is saying, I need you to do this while everybody's telling you, hey, I don't think you should. Even the people you highly respect, who do you love more? Whose heart do you passionately or driving towards more than anybody else? God's saying, your loyalty's with me. Be with me. It's always going to be a good... By the way, this is why we have to start out with understanding that this is all about hope. God, 
releasing this idea of what his plan and what his purpose is, is to give us hope that so we would trust him so that when he calls on us to be obedient, we will be obedient because it's in our best interest. His, his interest is always our best interest. That's what he's saying here. Some will refuse Christ as Savior, some even with our own household. For some, standing up for Christ and living for Christ will mean being the only one in your house that does so. Jesus says here in this passage that your reward will be great, for he also will acknowledge you before the Father. But this is also Jesus telling us, none of this is easy. <laughs> none of this is easy. I, I hate it that they always paint it easy. 2017 is going to be your best year ever. This is going to be the, man, I'm telling you, this is going to openly change your life so much, it's going to just blow your mind. But when it doesn't happen, man, we're like, well, that was a letdown. Like, because welcome to this world. This world's hard. This world's tough. And it's not easy. And all these guys that make it seem so easy, everything is so easy. Oh, it's going to, it's going to. They've said so many adjectives. I can't even believe anybody anymore. You know, I, I was talking to my mom this morning about this best year everything. Y'all have heard me rant on this a little bit. But I mean, like, for real. 2017, best year ever. Well, what was 16? That was supposed to be my best year. I'm not sure I can believe you, Pastor. You keep telling me every year is going to be my best year. So I'm thinking if 2016 was my best year, 2017 shouldn't be able to compete. I'm just saying. That makes sense to me. Don't use adjectives. Come on now, guys. You drive me crazy. That's a side note. Sorry. But it's not going to be easy. He didn't come to make it easy. He came to make a way for us. He paid a price where no one else was willing to pay. Through his work on the cross, he atoned for us, and now we can fall into the hands of grace, and one day we'll know that we will be where he is. This is the plan of God. This is how it unfolds. Let me remind you again to the, to the words Paul spoke to the Ephesians that we just read. He said, by God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least of deserving of all God's people, he's gracious, graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in, in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. By God's grace, by God's mighty power, we all now have the privilege of serving him. And I love it, Paul says, though I'm the least deserving one. Like I'm the one who's the most horrible person in the room, and yet God somehow included me into the plan and said both Jew and Jim, both Jew and Jim. These people, I have, I have worked through this and all, it's all this so I could unfold all this to you, Jim. And you should insert your name there, right? God has graciously given you also the privilege of telling others about Jesus. He also has chosen you to tell everyone else about his plan. He has chosen you to tell everyone about the great mystery of Jesus Christ. And today, if you dare yourself to, if you dare to even label yourself a Christian, you are professing that you are under the authority of Christ. You have proclaimed him Lord of your life. And this was God's, all his plan from the beginning. It's always been about Christ. And even now, it's still about Christ. It's in Christ that we are delivered from death and hell, that we are sanctified and set apart. It's in Christ that we're forgiven and transformed. All of this is the plan from before the foundations of the world. The mystery made known to you, Paul says, <coughs> so that we would glorify him even now. This is the plan. Now, briefly about the purpose. 
God's purpose, it says, Paul says God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Since the fall of Adam, God's always been to look. He's always trying to communicate with us, and it hadn't been easy. Because of the fall, we've grown farther and farther apart, right? Our sin natures corrupted the way we understand things, the way we get things. The funny thing is we're so arrogant because we always think we're so right. <laughs> uh, by the way, I'm just give you a little nugget. And one of the things, I think it, it irritates my wife a little bit because there are times probably where I take it too far. Uh, I listen to every single criticism, every argument, both the ones that seem crazy and, the, and even the ones that I would totally believe in. Why? Because what I hunger for more than being right is for the truth. I hunger that for that more than I hunger for being right. Guys, you sometimes, and we talked about this in here a little bit, Sometimes, man, your enemies will reveal some of the greatest truth to you, the things that you miss and the things that you lack. They see you when you're a hypocrite, and only they sometimes are the ones that can reveal to you when that's taking place. So before you count them out, you better search. When somebody calls you a hypocrite or if somebody's to call you a name or somebody's to say you're acting this way or you're this, whatever, you better check yourself before you go in there and just start talking. Because usually if your next reaction is, well, I go to church all the time, they don't even go to church. By the way, that's not a Jesus reaction. Because all of a sudden, self-righteous just jumped up in you. You just held that self-righteousness like a shield. Yeah, that sound very Christ. Be careful there, guys. Be careful. The gospel became the very power of God to communicate his love for us. That's what the gospel is. It's like a way of teaching us how to talk with God. It was so tough to communicate to this directly. So the Bible is written. And these stories unfold where God intervened in people's lives. And God has to take a people who, by the way, many times in the Bible are called blind, deaf, and dumb. I like the Old Testament. Stiff-necked. Right? Stiff-necked person. Can't even turn. Just got to turn their whole head, you know, turn their whole body. Can't do anything hardly. Right? Stubborn. God has got to explain heavenly things to a deaf, dumb, and blind person. Uh, I don't think many of you have got that kind of patience. It doesn't take long. If I saw you around your own animals, I'd probably see that you don't got that kind of patience. And if my dog don't sit down real quick, he's probably going outside. I said sit, didn't go, going outside. I don't have much patience for that. Not good at that. There's some people that are, not me. God has patience with us. And it's through that patience that we see the richness of God, his love, his grace, his mercy. We see the wisdom of God and the depth of his involvement in everything, and it gives us hope. It gives us hope. Now, let me explain to you a little truth that's just been, I've kind of talked about it before, but I, maybe a little bit more of a visual. Uh, I believe the church of God is, is, to me, this is how it works. I believe the church of God is like a vein of gold. Throw up the picture real quick. I've got a picture in there, I think. Explain how it works. It's a bad picture, but you get the idea. There's gold that runs through the vein, but the whole rock is there. Now, the rock is, the rock are all our churches, man. It's really like that. The, the rock, the whole wall of the rock is the churches that are built on God's name. Now, the gold is where the actual church is. But all the rock have names, right? I mean, all the rock, the rest of the rock has names. There are some churches, they got like a little gold in it right here. That's like one church. And, and, and that's usually the church that we go, I don't know how there's any good thing happening. There's like a bunch of hypocrites up in that church. Like, but how do they stay blessed? There's a lot of blessing in that church because this little bit of gold right here. 
How much salt do you like on your steak? Amen? Uh, if I pour you all the salt on your steak, you're going to like that? No, because sometimes it doesn't take very much. That's the beauty of, of you guys, right? That's the beauty. It doesn't take a lot of you. It just takes a little of you. I don't think that our city is even like 30% real Christian. I don't even think our city's like that. But I don't think it takes that much to make huge changes, sweeping changes. I think, honestly, I think the, the cool thing about Christianity is it's so influential whether you realize it or not. It's the yeast. You, you don't realize it's overtaking everything, but it is, right? Even if it's not changing them here, it's morally and ethically changing them where they like want to do right because they see you do right. They're not necessarily changed. So they, they have this, that's why the hardest thing in the Bible Belt to beat is what? This false idea that, that they have some kind of morale to them or an ethical principle self to them. Well, I'm a good person. Yeah, but good people go to hell all the time. You're not saved. I know some bad people who are saved who are trying to become good people, but they're saved. They're going to go to heaven. That's why I always think, you know, you always, every, listen, every like rapture movie you ever see, there's always at least one pastor standing on the pulpit. <laughs> Everyone you see, it's never the whole church goes. <laughs> right? I think a lot of our churches are like this. They're on the edges, and there's just enough. And you know, maybe some got a little more. Praise God that they do. Maybe they need it. Maybe they need it. You know the funny thing? I think the ones that probably need it the more, they're in foreign countries <laughs> where there's probably a lot of poverty, and the only hope is Jesus Christ. So they lean in on their faith. They lean in on their hope. They lean in on something, that a promise that they have not seen, a glory that they have not known. They lean in on those things. But it's never like the whole church is that way. Nobody believes it. Not even the movie people, man. Not even the Christian movie people believe that the whole church is saved. Think about how crazy that idea is. You think that this is where the saved people are. Not necessarily. Some, but not all. Some come because they know it's the moral and right thing to do. Some come for self-righteousness. They come so they can say, I've been to church, man. I go to church every Sunday. I go to church every Wednesday. And by the way, that'll get you, get you by a long time. I, I've told you many times, the first two years I was saving, still smoking pot in the church, I was at church like four times a week, so there sure wasn't about to be no deacon talk to me because they don't even come to church that much. Mm, that'll preach. So, I mean, like, there, was, there is some form of self-righteousness. There's even some clout in the church if you come to church a lot. We've created that, a little, little bit of self-righteousness. Here, have a little self-righteousness. Totally don't realize that we're totally not helping anybody by creating that. And we just naturally inclined to sin, so we can't help it. But the good news, the good news is that there's enough gold in the church to create the catalyst of change. And that's what has to happen. That's what has to happen. The church that Jesus built cannot be contained by four walls. She's too big for that. The real church rarely goes noticed because they're humble. They don't seek attention to themselves, but rather they are constantly pointing to Jesus through loving others, through showing kindness, through being generous and serving this world. The church is, she's a conundrum. Uh, because she is small, many take her for granted and think that she can't do much. But Jesus calls her the salt of the earth. Jesus calls her the light of the world. This is how our church buildings and church ministries are blessed because it's, it's, it isn't the depth or the width of the pastor's vision and plans that makes things great. It's the people who are united with their God, who, bring, uh, who are being Jesus to all they meet and who set this world right and make it joyful, a joyful thing to be experienced. 
It's not, it's not great plans that are brought about by some great men. The church is always going to be. The great thing about the church is the real one that's underneath the whole thing. Underneath our giant d- denominational organizations, underneath our giant you know, hierarchy of how we've created all this junk, somewhere underneath there in a tiny little vein through this giant rock. Like if I pan out, you see how this giant rock is in this small little piece of gold. But I'm going to tell you, which is more, more valuable, the rock or the gold? The rock has no value, but it has value because it has what in it? Gold. Some of these churches don't got a lot of value, but you know what the value they do have in it? What makes it valuable? The reason why there's still God blessing it and God doing stuff in it? Because there's some gold in there. No, you can't see it because it might be a tiny little strip of vein. Maybe you haven't trained your eyes to see it. Maybe you're not there where you can see some of that yet. But she's there right underneath everything. Oh, the church will never get her credit for the things here on earth, but in heaven, Jesus already has crowns upon crowns. He's united with her. He's in love with her. He parades her around for us. He parades us around everybody. He says, look at my church. Isn't she excellent? By the way, the world goes, no. Look how messed up she is. Look, at, I know, that's the wisdom that fools the world, guys. That's the wisdom you can't see. You, you see me as a fool, but I'm, I'm trying to display my wisdom on full effect. Look what I can do. Look at these people whom I can, who I've atoned for, who now sit in righteousness who, who, who will be throned in glory with me. I mean, that's, that's the richness of life. That's the richness of life. This is what God intended. This is what God intended. Man, I think we miss this all the time. I used to tell my wife, or I, some of you have heard me say it in here, that the, the church is a lot like my wife. You know, my wife gets up in the morning, she don't put her makeup on. She'll, if she doesn't put her makeup on, it's like all sagging down. She feels like she's got to put makeup on like every day. But I always tell her in the mornings when I first hear her, I go, that's the prettiest you're ever going to be. Like, why are you, you don't, you're pretty to me right now. Oh, you're the only one that thinks like that, right? And I'm like, you're crazy. Like, you keep putting all this stuff on, and we keep telling girls that you got to keep smudging all this stuff on to be pretty. Are you kidding me? You're pretty just like you are. You're pretty just like you are. And they don't get it. They still try to put their makeup on. Believe me, man, let, let me bring it closer to home. You think church is different? Oh, we have, we have, listen, mascara just looks like LED lights now. Smoky eyes, real easy. A fog machine will take care of smoky eyes. If you like that smoky-eyed look on a woman. A little mascara and some LED lights will light this place up. You want to feel like the days of Solomon again? We'll pour on a little bit more smoke, make you feel like the days of Solomon again. You need to, I mean, we've learned how to create atmosphere. We've learned how to pretty up everything. So everything is all beautiful. Everything is all pretty. Everything is all nice and neat. It's designed so well. These images are, are built with this advertising and this marketing aspect so that we might display and try to get this heartfelt emotion out of you so we can get you to say yes when we propose the gospel. The problem is that the gospel is messy and it's ugly. And when we look back to a Bible that's filled with persecution and bloodshed, and we look to the church today, we go, I don't, like it's weird to us. Something's wrong. Something's not right. Right? And the great thing is there's this call, like, like I believe God's telling us right now, there's this call to return again to the basics of our faith. Right? We said last Wednesday, the three things that if I can ever teach you, the three things that you will do every day of your life, even if it's just get five minutes to each one of these three things. I, I'm going to give my everything, my all, to teach everybody that comes to Mosaic these three things. I want to teach you how to pray, which is super easy. It's just talk. 
Second, I, uh, I want to teach you how to read the Bible and to get you fascinated again with it. Thirdly, I want to teach you how to talk to people and tell people about Jesus. And it's not like this script, guys. It's not a script. It starts with just loving them and accepting them just like they are. I don't care what the words they use. I don't care if they still cut. I hope they're lost, man. Love them just where they're at, like they are. It should be natural. It should be an overflow of whatever's happening in your life. If I can teach you those three things, you're already going to be far greater than any church just about in this nation. The majority of Christians do not do those three things every day. I haven't seen a statistic for that to give you that, but I'm pretty positive. I struggle every day with that. And I'm, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to be like the great leader, right? But it's hard. It's hard. I can, I can get two of those every day. But maybe I didn't evangelize today like I should have. Maybe I should have been the gospel at a time when I couldn't be. Those are things we got to think about. Part of the process. God is trying to develop us and unite us and grow us. He says, this is my plan to bring you in under the authority of Christ that it was going to be all-inclusive, no more nationality, no more races. That's why I loved in Acts when Philip is carried away and he's all of a sudden he's talking to the Ethiopian. Wait a minute. Well, I thought, like, can you imagine them when they were talking Gentiles? They're probably thinking white folk. Well, Ethiopian, whoa, now we're opening it up to more? Yeah, it's all-inclusive. Like, God loves people of color. He made them, by the way. Anybody knows that. He made them. God loves all color, man. He loves all nations. All, all are going to come to, we're all going to be in heaven. It's all going to work there. Under him is the head, under Jesus Christ. It's going to be glorious. This, and then, and then what does Paul say here at the end? This was the purpose. This was the whole reason. This was why. And now you are out there. You are my church. You are my people. And when they see you, they will see the wisdom of God. I know some of you are like, uh, no, they won't. They will. They will. They will. Because they'll see you just like they see me, the foolishness of Christ. Man, God saved you? Absolutely. Can't believe it, but he totally did. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about who I was and who I am now. Oh, yeah. That's how it starts. It's real simple. They see the change in you, and it begins like that. Stand to your feet this morning. Let's finish by worshiping the Lord.
And if there's someone in here right now that you haven't experienced the beauty of Jesus Christ, this is like your moment. This is your moment. If you've never professed the words that Jesus is Lord, if you've never had the opportunity to say, Lord, come into my life, come into my heart, change me from the inside out, that's you this morning. And if that's you, I want you to come, just come, to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this guitar off and I'm going to meet with you right here at the front. It's like we said this morning, part of it is a confession of faith. Part of it is this realization, though, that I need help, that I need Jesus. And if that's you this morning, I'm going to give you the opportunity. I mean, maybe, you, you, maybe we all think you are and you never have. Maybe, maybe whatever that is, but this is an opportunity for you. If you feel like you've never come to the Lord, you feel like you've never said those words where, Lord, I want you to come into my heart. I want you to make a change in me, God. It's not about not going to be judged this morning. We're going to protect you. We're going to love you. But if that's you this morning, we'll just give you an opportunity in the quietness as, as we're all praying. If, if that's not you this morning, you should be praying. You should be praying for if somebody is in here and that hadn't had the, have got to enjoy the happiness or the joy of the Lord because they do not know them, you should be praying for them right now. And if that is you this morning, that you haven't experienced the happiness that comes with knowing Christ, if you haven't experienced the joy of knowing Jesus right now, this is your opportunity. This is for you. Just give you a few seconds here. Just come. I'm going to meet you right up here in the front. I'm going to pray with you. We're going to pray together. I'm not trying to call anybody out. I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. But it has to start somewhere. There has to be this outward profession. And I promise you, this is the easiest place to become be a Christian. Let's just give it a moment. Help them have courage, Father. If there's someone in this room, God, I do not pretend to know. I do not point fingers, Father. I simply ask, God, Lord, let it not be the preaching, let it not be the worship, but let it be the power of the Holy Spirit, God that draws people, that draws your children to themselves, that draws them to you, God. Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Man, I know it's not easy. I know know how hard it is to walk to the front worry about anything that might be looking at you at the back and and the glorious thing is is this is not that place and you're accepted and loved just like yours Jesus says I have come to give you life and life more abundantly I have come to accept you but ask for you to accept him also you just repeat after me and these aren't words that save you it's the life change that, that, that of you walking with Christ that saves you but it starts with with something so these are just baby steps right here. And just, and just say this with me, Lord, come into my heart. I repent, God. I recognize you as Lord and Savior. I love you. I need you, God. Father, help me become all new in Jesus' name. That's, and that's just a prayer, and I know it doesn't change anything physically, but what happens is it starts to change something inside of us. When we start to admit that something's wrong, it changes us on the inside. And that's the part that's important. Man, and you confess that before all here. So the Lord said he will confess you before his Father. Can we just have a few that will come and pray? Those are his friends. Will you come in and just let's pray for him real quick.
Because now the hard part is, right? Now the part is where like, we, we, we begin to love him. We begin to accept him. We, we begin to just hold him up and lift him up. That God's doing a great thing here. Father, we, we don't pretend to understand how great and how vast and how big your riches and love and mercy are, God. But every time we see someone uh, come and profess your name, every time we see someone come and say, Lord, I need to repent. I need to turn my life around, God. We see the power of your son. We see the power of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit right here, right now in this young man, Father. Lord, and we are moved by it, God. We are moved to prayer. We are moved to seek your glory and see your face, God. We are reminded in this one moment that there is hope for all of us, God, that we are all the same, God, that we all met you right here at the, at the altar. We all met you right here by saying, Lord, we repent also, God. We were all right here, God. We all started out here, God. And Father, you said that every time someone comes and professes your name, someone comes and receives you by faith, God, that the angels in heaven cry out and give praise and give honor and glory. So we thank you for the celebration in heaven right now, Father, that you are calling things on earth as it is in heaven, God, that you have already prepared a place for him uh, next to you, Father. You've prepared his family. You've prepared all things, God. You've, you've decided to turn this one around. God, you've called him out from darkness and into light, God. And we've all been there. We all know you become brother and sister. You become the saints of God. Father, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, man. If you ain't clapping your hands, you should be. You should be. The next part is we're going to baptize this young man. Some of you have been there, you know. You've been ducked in the water. Time to get the horse trough out. Redneck step number two. God is a good God. God God is doing something. God is doing something. We're allowed the opportunity We're allowed the opportunity of being so small to stand alongside him now and help him grow and help him mature. Those who are next to him, God has put you next to him for a reason. Begin to pour into him. Let's make sure we get him a Bible. If you don't, if you're not able to go and tell me, I'll get one for him. Those that are next to him got to stand up now. We got to hold him up. Right? It's not going to be easy. We all know. We've all failed more times than we can count. We know it's not easy. All right? But this is, this is what God has called us to. This is the plan and purpose of God. You just saw everything we talked about today manifest itself like that. This is the mystery of God unfolded before the world. Amen? Amen. Man, what a wonderful morning this morning. Hug somebody that's next to you. Tell them you love them this morning. This is what serving the Lord is about. Amen? Amen.